click, pay, and download instantly. Welcome to the podcast. podcast by Basecamp about the better way to work and run your business. I'm your host, Sean Hildner. On this new format for the podcast, I'm going back through the original text and talking to the authors of Rework the Book, Jason Fried and David Heinemeyer Hansen, about what's changed or not over the last decade plus since the book was published. This week, we're discussing the introduction and chapter one, which is titled The New Reality. All right. Well, welcome to whatever this new version of Rework is. Um, I was talking to David before you got on, Jason. What we're doing is I wanted to go back to rework the book and talk to both of you uh, about what's changed in the last, what, 11 years? Is that, when, when was this published? It was, yeah. 2010. Yeah, 11 years. So it's been over a decade. I'm assuming we've learned some things about the things you write about in the book. And we're going to try to keep it like a book club so we can go chapter by chapter. And if our listeners want to follow along, they can do so. And I think for this first episode, let's uh, cover the intro and then chapter one, the uh, the new reality. So welcome to Rework, David Heinemeyer Hansen and Jason Fried. Hey, Sean. Hey. So, I mean, to start out, when was the last time you guys read any of these? You mean Rework? Yeah. Any of these essays? It's probably, it's been a number of years, I would say, since I've read the book. Yeah. I mean, since writing Same. it? <laughs> no, no, I did. I've read it a few times since, but sure. it's been a while. It's been sure. what, 11 years since we published it. So it's been, it's probably been a good five, six years since I've, I mean, I, I refer to it occasionally. I'll open it and, but I, I haven't read it cover to cover in a long, long time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, in the intro, let's uh, jump into this. You start by saying this book is something new to say about business. Do you still feel like you have new things to say about business? And that's sort of the, the other question there is, have you seen anything change in sort of the business world or even the, the tech industry? Well, I think um, our latest book, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, is sort of our latest take. It's really the, the spiritual successor to Rework, mm-hmm. more so than Remote was. Remote was like a very specific topic. But It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, I think, is our latest feeling about work and how it should be run. And I think it's similar to Rework in that way. But there's, I think, a little bit more of a focus on time on sort of the chaos that I think work has become more and more over the past 11 years. I, I think things seem busier. People seem busier than ever. Technology exists today that keeps people busier than ever. And it, it, it's been become much, much, much harder to separate yourself from work, I think, over the past 11 years, especially given the fact that like when we wrote that book, I think the iPhone was like three years old or something like that. And I don't even know if at that point they had native apps yet. I forget how long it took for them to oh, do before that. before the app store, right. Yeah. So like you kind of had to open your laptop back then to sort of be absorbed in work, except for email. Email was always a thing. But now there's just so many reasons to pull you back. So I think that that's a new thing. That's something that has changed and that we still have, we have very strong opinions about it that are perpendicular to to the the industry. I mean, the industry is all about right now about real time and chat and video and the whole thing. And I think we're still saying like, that's not a good approach all the time. It's a good approach sometimes, but most of the time it's not, it's not the default way to, to interact. So I think there's some definite things there. There's also, 
Um, you know, I think we've seen more and more companies talk about how they're a family and the word family is being used more and more. And, and I think that we continue to push back hard on that. I think there's a lot of things that we say that still aren't widely adopted, but I will say that I think we've been early on a number of things that proved to be pretty true. Like remote work. Remote work, the notion that um, you need to you know, raise a whole bunch of money to do anything. Small teams can do big things. All these things are still very true from you know, way back when in 2010 when we, we put these ideas out there. And I think if anything, the fact that we put these things out there 11 years ago and they still represent an opposition to... <laughs> the main dogma of how you start a technology company is is interesting in and of itself, right? Yeah. Because this book, Rework, sold over half a million copies, hear from people all the time. That doesn't mean that that becomes sort of the new governing structure of how people think about things. Not at all. You didn't change business with with your first book, right? You, you didn't completely rework the entire industry. No, right? I mean, we changed business for some people, and we keep hearing from the people who who found either rework or other writings inspired by it or from it that like it really changed their perspective. But did it change the industry? Right. I don't think so. Uh, in the sense that the dominant uh, narrative on so many of these topics that we cover in rework remained the same, and in fact, some of the episodes that we present like uh, meetings are toxic was one of the popular yep. uh, topics in that first. It's gotten even more true now that all the meetings are happening on Zoom or, or other video chat systems that people hate those meetings even more. They feel even more disruptive in many ways. So in some regards, I think some of the topics we cover have just gotten more relevant over time, not less. Yeah. I, I, the other thing that's been interesting is so um, – our email address is at the end of the book. It's like rework. I think it's probably like rework at 37signals.com actually. Uh-huh. And I get those emails. So um, I, those emails are forwarded to me. And I constantly get emails from people who are reading rework for the first time. I actually ran into a neighbor just this last week. And she's like, did you, are you the rework guy? Did you guys read, <laughs> I just read that book. And so people are discovering this book all the time. But what's been really interesting is over the past few months, I've been getting a ton of emails from India. Indian entrepreneurs are, are reading Rework for the first time, and somehow it made its way over there. And now the people are, are discovering this book for the first time. Um, so it, it's sort of making its way around the world. It's been translated into a, a dozens of languages at this point, I think. And um, it's, it's still very much alive. And uh, it sort of feels like it has an underground vibe, even though it's, it's quite popular. It's a New York Times bestseller and all that, but it still feels kind of underground and like it's still spreading, which is really, really cool. So no, we didn't change the industry, but I think we addressed, we, we, we made the industry think about some things. Sure. And a number of people run businesses based on these ideas today. And they, they wouldn't have because they didn't know that there's an alternative. And the other, the other thing is, is that we hear from a lot of people who have always run their business this way for 20 or 30 or 40 years, who are like, everyone told me I was crazy for not doing X, Y, Z, but I feel you know validated now in a sense, because I'm seeing there's someone else out there like us who just or like me speaking for the other person um, who just has a sane approach to work and uh, they're not just aiming for world dominance constantly. (laughs) Which also goes to show that many of these conflicts that we try to tackle from a different perspective, they're evergreen. Yeah, People have been running a company in this way for 30, 40 years and been called crazy for 30, 40 years because these are in many ways intrinsic battles or at least lines of how you can run? How should you fund a business? How long should you work? Um, How should you work together? What are the ways you should collaborate? Like these are evergreen topics that 
just have a long shelf life, which is the other thing with Rework as Jason says, we keep hearing from new readers that this wasn't a thing that happened uh, 11 years ago. And then these topics are just no longer relevant. If you were describing, I don't know, Friendster or something or something very specific to the technologies of the day, or we were talking about JavaScript, how it looked in 2007 or something that would have dated and would have disappeared. These are evergreen topics and evergreen conflicts in many ways that have two different sides to them. And we represent the opposition on most of them. Um, I'm trying to think if there was any of the points that at the time we felt like, wow, we're really in opposition, where where that has changed. I mean, rework or uh, remote work is probably the thing. Yeah, remote work is probably the thing. People are sort of forced into it. It wasn't really necessarily a choice. Although, I mean, that so they got forced into it. But I think what has been interesting is that people haven't just suffered through it. It has really changed a lot of people's minds about, oh, I... I strongly believe this wasn't possible. I strongly believe that unless you had the water cooler, unless we were all in the same, in front of the same whiteboard, we couldn't collaborate. And lo and behold, I've just spent a year collaborating and we've continued to put out products and services and so on. We may think that there are advantages still to these things, but it's really opened a lot of people's eyes because it forced them to do a thing that they had only theorized about. This was why we felt so strongly about remote was by the time we wrote Rework, we'd been doing it for a decade. By the time we wrote um, remote, we'd been doing it for even longer, right? So we knew this worked because we'd actually done it versus the majority of the opposition to remote work in particular came from people who'd never really done it. never tried it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. The, the rest of this intro is mostly setting up uh, 37 Signals bona fides. And it's really fun to go back. If you haven't done it lately, it's fun to go back and see the kind of things you guys are talking about. Very proud of a 16-person company. Uh, <laughs> and I think, you know, we had four products at the time that <laughs> we were promoting. So you want to talk a little bit about, just really quickly, how the company itself has changed in the last 11 years? Sure. Well, we grew quite a bit. So about what, 4X the size at that time. Yeah. But we we slimmed down our product offering. Those are the two primary changes, really. More people, fewer products. And the reason we did fewer products is because even though we had more people, we couldn't really service four products simultaneously at a high level. And during that time, the mobile revolution really began, I would say. And you had to have native apps for every product that you made. So you had a web version, an iOS version, and eventually an Android version, which meant you had three products for every product. So if you have four, you have 12 code bases, essentially, to manage with you know a handful of people. It's just not something you can really do at a high level. Um, and so you know, it was about six years ago, I don't know, seven, six, something like that, uh, we decided to go all in and change the name of the company to Basecamp. That's another thing that changed. Um, yeah, this book is by 37 Signals, according to the cover. I don't know what 37 yeah. Signals is. Who are those people? Yeah. Uh, 37 Signals is now Basecamp, and, and that changed about six, seven years ago or so. And we've been doing that for a long time until last year we launched a second product again. So we're kind of getting back to the place where we can have multiple products at once. Yeah. And and to that end, and we've talked about this internally and a little bit externally, we're, we're aiming to, to get quite a bit bigger uh, than we've ever been. Because we want to be able to do two things at once as if we are fully dedicated to each one. Right. Um, like when, we, when we're all in on Hay or all in on Basecamp, we can, we can make exceptional software and, and, and do it in a really good clip and continue to improve the product. Well, you're sacrificing the other product, right? Yes. Yeah. Right. 
but and we don't want to do that anymore. So right. we want to we want to get back into being able to work on both at once. So that's another thing that's going to be changing. So when we talk again in eleven years or whatever it is, <laughs> re- revisit this conversation, <laughs> right. uh, the company will be quite a bit different than it is today. Yeah. Um, so I think those are the those are the two or three major changes. And David, the uh, the other thing that's mentioned is Ruby on Rails, which I believe the quote is has driven many Web 2.0 applications. <laughs> um, what is the sort of the state of Ruby on Rails, and how has that changed in the last eleven years? It's interesting because I was thinking, like, what are the things where we've been yelling into the wind and <laughs> we continue to have our opposition to the mainstream? Ruby on Rails became mainstream. So that was a thing that was in opposition for quite a while where we were uh, beating the drum for a different way of building web software. And then it won, right? Like all of a sudden you have these huge companies using Rails, and you don't see it in the moment, but if you look back at it now, the fact that Shopify, a $130 billion publicly listed company with thousands of engineers running on Ruby and Rails. Oh, okay. That was a thing that started in, I think Toby started that in 2005. Mm. That was a snow devil back then that led into Shopify, right? So some of these seeds that we planted way back when that were still kind of young, by the time we wrote Rework, have grown into full-blown Redwoods. Yeah. I mean, you've got GitHub, you got Shopify, you got Airbnb, you got Twitch. And what's funny was shortly after we wrote WeWork, or, or maybe they're about like Twitter was started on Ruby and Rails, right? And for a while, there was kind of like this is, oh, Twitter has gone to another uh, tech platform because blah, blah, blah. And people were f- having some insecurities about this. And now I'm like, oh, thank heavens. Uh, please don't um, necessarily put my name associated with that tech stack today. Um, so, but there's just just Hulu, Sendesk, Square, and Cookpad. Just there's so many of these huge applications that had such an influence on the industry, not just within Ruby and Rails, but how everyone else did software, mm-hmm. how everyone else did web stuff, and that it's still going strong. That's the other thing, right? Like if you had asked me in 2010. At that point, Rails was, what is that going to be, six years old? Like, is this still going to be the thing we use a decade from now? I'd probably gone like, probably not. Most technology just doesn't get to live that long. Um, things move on. You look at JavaScript and, and you blink and it's something new that people use over there. Uh, Rails is stuck around, which is just has been a fascinating thing to watch. We continue to build it. I continue to be ever so excited to work with it. And we continue to evolve it. And we introduce something new like Hey, and just really move the goalposts on both Ruby and Rails and how we do the front end. And all of our technology stuff has just continued to evolve in a way where if you had asked me then, I would have thought, you know what, we're going to be using something else, right? Because that's just technology moves so fast. And I think perhaps that's the other lesson from Rework in general is that there's a lot of things that don't move very fast at all. And there aren't actually that many big tectonic shifts in software in business. The iPhone, that was one. Mm -hmm. As Jason said, it really did change the game. And you had to approach software development differently afterwards. Remote, as it happened through the pandemic, was another. Between those two things, aren't that many you'd point out and say, like, they've really changed how we work or how we approach things, which is also why the book is still evergreen, right? Because these fundamental struggles we had back then or or our opinions back then, they're still relevant because they still apply to current topics. 
Well, speaking of current topics, let's move on to chapter one, the new reality. And you open this one by saying that uh, this book is for everyone who wants to start a business. Jason, you sort of mentioned this a little bit earlier. Who are the sort of people you've been hearing from, you know, that email this 37 signals address um, that have used this book to start a business? They're, they're all, it's all small businesses. You know, a lot of people left a job and they went off and started their own thing. One of the things, you, you, one pattern I see is people are caught in between two worlds. So they they are like, I thought that I had to raise a bunch of money and I had to get really big. And I've been sitting out there trying to, to, you know, contact VCs and like, no one's returning my email. It's been sort of this, this horrible process. And then I came upon your book and I realized I didn't have to do that. Like, so there's, 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 that's, that's a common story Mm -hmm. is I was doing it this other way. It wasn't working. It sucked. I thought it was the only way someone told me to check out your book. I checked it out. Oh, okay. There's a different way. This is great. Now, whether or not that works for them, like, look, business is hard anyway. So reading rework is not going to make your business work, <laughs> but it's, it's a, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a method. It's an approach yeah. that, that we think increases your odds actually, but it's of course not, not a guarantee. We never want to do that, but hear a lot from those, hear a lot of, uh, just for, from individual solopreneurs, uh, people who are just doing something on their own and, and it gives them a degree of confidence that they don't have to be something they don't want to be. Uh, that's something we hear a lot. I'd even say permission. Yeah. It's not just confidence. It's permission to think this way because so much of the feedback that I've heard as well is from people who already thought this way, as Jason said, but thought like, I'm not supposed to, this is not professional. Yeah. I'm not supposed to do it like this. I'm supposed to act bigger, uh, puff myself up, uh, do all these things that all the business books say I'm supposed to do. And here's a book that tells me exactly the opposite, that like what I actually had inside my fingers was right all along. That sort of leads into my next question. One of, the, one of the things you say is that today, anyone can be in business, today meaning 2010. Do you still believe this? Do you still think it is, or I, I guess, what, how has the landscape changed for getting into business in the last 11 years? I mean, everyone can certainly start something. It's not, it's not hard to start something. I think we've talked about this. Uh, I don't think this was in rework necessarily, but, but post rework, we talked a lot about like starting something is actually the easy thing. Staying is the hard thing. Um, sticking around is the hard thing. Um, cause you can start a business tomorrow. In fact, like th- things like Stripe Atlas make it really, really, really easy to actually like be legitimate starting a business and get an LLC registered. And, all, you know, that's the easy part. Um, coming up with an idea is the relative easy. These are the easier parts of business. The harder part is like a year later, you know, are, are you able to sustain? Um, have you found any paying customers? Have you built anything that anyone else can use? Like that's ultimately the hard part. I'd actually, you know, it's funny. You can look at this two ways. There's a lot of, for example, like even just getting a website up or building a product. I actually think it's, it's become, it's become easier to get a, a templated website up. Like you can use Squarespace or whatever. There's some really great ways just to get online, I think. But things have become harder um, in a lot of ways. The tech stack that people are looking at, everything's been complicated. And it's really hard now. There's so many options and everything's so complicated and overwrought. And a lot of it is because it's modeled after the way larger companies do things. And so small companies are following things that are completely irrelevant to them. But it's like the, the popular thing to do because, well, of course, this is how Facebook works. Like, I want to be the next Facebook. So I think it's gotten a lot harder, a lot harder actually to start a tech company also, there's just way more competition. There's there's a lot. So so that that's the harder. I think it, some of it's got a lot harder, and some of it's actually quite a bit easier. Um, but it's always been hard to sustain. 
it's kind of all about putting the odds a bit more in your favor. So if, if, if you like raised a bunch of money, there's only one way to sustain, which is to, to go big basically and make it huge. Like that's the only sustainable route forward. If you raised money, if you don't raise money, you have a lot more options. You can do that and get big. You can stay small. You can go mid-sized. You're not living up to just one expectation. So I think that the rework style business has as more optionality and more flexibility. And I think that that's something that's really valuable, especially in your first year or two or three. Um, not feeling like you have to be something that you aren't yet and you're striving for this thing that's almost impossible to get. That's a that's a really tricky thing compared to like, could we just strive to pick up a handful of customers that allow us to pay our bills? That's an easier target. Yeah. I think one thing that's certainly gotten harder to some extent is if you don't have the skills yourself to build what you're trying to launch, that's become very difficult because it's become very expensive. Um, just tech salaries over the past 10 years have exploded. You're saying talent has become ex- expensive. It, yes. So if you're trying to start something and you don't know how to build it, you have to go buy it from someone. You have to go buy it from a consultancy. You have to go buy it from individual contributors. That has become very expensive, which means that that path used to be more accessible. Maybe it still is in some ways. You go upwork, you go that kind of crapshoot. But to just give the personal example, for Jason to do today what he did in 2001... <laughs> That's going to be my next question. That wasn't going to work, right? Like you weren't going to find or you aren't going to find someone that you can pay neither $15 an hour or 40 bucks an hour or whatever to build these kinds of things because right. the tech industry has gotten so much larger. There's these huge companies that just suck up so much of the the talent with really high salaries. Um, Did you have to figure it out yourself? You have to join up with someone and you're building it. You're not buying it. That's where sort of how difficult is it to learn is a really interesting question. In some ways, I I agree with Jason that if you follow the prescribed path, oh, you got to do React this and then you got to do split the front ends and you got to have three, five code bases, you think like, oh man, I need a I need a team of 20 just to get my prototype out the door. But the battle that I've continued to fight with Ruby on Rails is to at least give the option for something else. I continue to design Ruby on Rails and everything else that we do in the JavaScript world, for example, as if I had to start from scratch, what would I want? If I was one person and Jason and I had to rebuild Basecamp tomorrow because we were starting from completely from scratch, right? What set of tools would I like? And that's what's so fascinating about this. These tools are there. But to some extent, they've stepped back a little bit from the limelight. Like Ruby on Rails really had its promotional heyday in like 2006, 2007, 8, maybe, where a lot of people are like, oh, this is what we gotta gotta pick. But now so many businesses today are started with a lot of venture capital and hey, hiring 20 people so that you can follow whatever methodology Facebook uses to build their stuff right. is accessible in some ways to a small minority of companies who are then very prolific in how they detail how they build their stuff. And then the other end of it, the hey, we're just two people. That voice has gotten somewhat less, but the stuff is still all there. So the same thing as with the book. If you read this book, if you look at these tools, you can totally do these things. Again, prefaced on the fact that you're going to build it yourself like or your team, the, the people who are starting. I would say, though, one of the things that's been harder 
is to reverse engineer things. Um, when I got started, I know this is like, you know, back in my day kind of, kind of point, but you know, you could go to any website, view source and understand the whole damn thing. Yeah. Yes. Because it was just that that's all there was. Now it's a lot harder to view source. <laughs> I mean, it's easier to view, it's, it's easy to view source, but to, to look at it and make sense of it is very complicated. And especially even now we have things like the inspector, which we didn't have way back when in, in web browsers to like, pull things apart and take them apart and look at them. That actually is even more intimidating. Like you just look at a, a lit, like a box on a page and you're like, holy shit. I don't know how that box was made. There's like 12 classes surrounding this <laughs> right. box. It's, it's, you know, like nested seven layers deep. It's like, this is impossible to just, to, just to piece apart. And uh, it just didn't used to be that way. So I think it's actually quite intimidating now to get started by just disassembling something that exists. And it's kind of like, I imagine it's, this, it's no different than um, trying to learn how to work on a car today. You, you go take a modern car and you open the hood. It's like, it's basically a computer. Um, you can't even see the engine. There's like a beautiful cover over the engine and like you can't get in. It's so tightly packed, but you open a you know a car from the sixties or something. And like you open the hood, and there's like actual space and you can stick your hand in the engine and you can see how things connect. So to learn to be a mechanic uh, on an older car, would have been much easier than to learn to be a mechanic today. I think that's what's happened on the web and with software in general. Is everything's become very, very opaque and very complicated. And what's so frustrating is that it hasn't necessarily gotten better <laughs> because of it. There's some ways in some forms where things have gotten better, but proportionally, absolutely not. Is the improvement in the apps we're using today, 2021, um, proportionate to the increasing complexity compared to 2005, six, seven? Absolutely not. No way. Um, that is what feels so squandered, right? Technology is supposed to make things easier, make us more productive, make us better, right? Especially over time. But it seems like it's taking longer, more complexity, more people, more resources to do sort of the same things. And I think part of that trap there is that especially in technology, we have such an urge to keep pushing for progress, right? So we keep coming up with new things and, and new approaches, and they're ever so slightly more complicated than the one that went before it, and that just compounds. Um, and it compounds particularly when you didn't have people who can focus on just one small area. When you were making web stuff in 2001, you were doing it all. Right, you're a designer. You're you're in the HTML. You're doing whatever little JavaScript needs to be done. You're doing it all. If you go today to most even mid-sized companies, everything has been atomized to the point where, like, I'm a specialist in this little front end bit of that part. Right. I do my bit, and then I need another five, six, ten people to do the other bits before we have a widget that is actually interesting to anyone. Whereas in the past, it used to be you could be a generalist. And you could make something. There's so many people today who are very, very good at what they do. They're highly specialized. They're highly skilled. They're highly intelligent. They can't make anything. Mm -hmm. Because you can't just, that thing alone does not a thing make, right? <laughs> I, I can like, I can pause this thing, but I need these other five people. And I think that that's just, it's such a shame. And I think if this is one of those things you have to be skeptical about your 
own age for both Jason and I, we go like, oh, in our days, it was very much better, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Like we walked uphill in both directions and could see the source and everything was hunky-dory. There are all these other things, right? Like we used to battle with uh, incompatibilities between browsers all the right. time, right? Like remember IE4 and 5 and like it wouldn't work. And that has sort of disappeared with evergreen browsers. So it's not like some of this progress hasn't resulted in improvements, but overall, it's difficult to look at today's picture and say that the mainstream way of developing software has gotten better, easier, or more productive. I don't think it has. Is this a problem with education? Are we teaching new coders very specific things, or have we gotten rid of a no, general education? No, I think it's it's the capture of big companies. It's the, the size of the companies that are originating a lot of the frameworks and the methodologies have gotten enormous compared to what it was in the early 2000s, right? Which has given rise to the fact that it doesn't matter if you have 20 people on a project or 100 people on a project. Companies are plenty of money to do it either from VC or because they're part of FANG or associated companies. And that, it's the specialization. It's the rise of the specialization, which was inevitable. You're not going to have... 10,000 generalists inside a big company. That's just not, that is actually not efficient to some degree, right? right? The problem is that the complexity required to operate a Facebook is leaking into the rest of the industry. As exactly as Jason says, um, someone looks at it, how should I build this? And like, oh, at Facebook, they do this. I mean, when we're, now we're just picking on Facebook. There's a million examples where it's the same thing. You're looking to a big company and then you're trying to think like, I, I want to do that. No, no, you shouldn't. You should do the opposite of that. Rework itself that is one of the core premises. Don't look to huge companies on like the best way to run your company. A company that has divisions and VPs and senior VPs and whatever, their entire problem space does not connect or relate to the concerns of a four-person company. In fact, they are the exact opposite of what you need at four people. And they're just far more four-people companies than there are 100,000 person companies, right? So the lessons we should be distributing more broadly are for the four people, but that's just not where people generally have the time to write and, and whatever. So you get this cycle where most of the people who are producing the technology and the writing and whatever, they come from larger companies and they're putting out this message, this is what you need. And it's just not true. You need the opposite. And we're already at the cusp of that in some regards. I'd actually say, as Jason mentioned, the fact that we're about to get a bit larger, we're going to have to stretch to stay in philosophical contact with the five-person company. I mean, we spend a long time at that phase where most tech companies are rushing to get through. Like, oh, I was five people like two months ago, and now we're 50. And next month, we're going to be 120. If you're on this rocket ship, we were very slow in our growth. But we're, we're going to start to lose some touch yeah. with what it's like to be five people, because that is the inevitable consequence if you are 60, 70, 80, 100. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to talk to both of you uh, as this, uh, this goes on. But I think, I think this is a pretty good place to stop on, on this chapter. Thank you both for coming on. Next time on Rework, we're going to be tackling uh, the next essay, which I believe is Ignore the Real World. This will be a fun one. So thank you both. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. Rework is a production of Basecamp. You can find all of our past episodes at rework.fm. We are on Twitter at Rework Podcast. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, we're treating this a little like a book club. So if you'd like to follow along, go pick up a copy of Rework at your local bookstore or maybe give something like bookshop.org a try. And next week, we'll be discussing the chapter titled Ignore the Real World.
enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. This Labor Day, put an end to junk sleep. Right now at Mattress Firm, save up to $500 on our top-rated brands when you get a king bed for the price of a queen or a queen for a twin. Plus, get a free adjustable base when you spend $6.99 on Sealy. Or save up to 50% on hot buys from top brands like Sleepies or Serta. With our highly trained sleep experts and our low-price guarantee, you can rest assured you'll get the best bed at the best price. Unjunk your sleep only at Mattress Firm. Offer valid with qualifying purchase. Restrictions apply. Valid at participating locations only. For offer details, visit mattressfirm.com slash sale. ¿Por qué esta Coca-Cola de McDonald's sabe tan bien? ¿Será la máquina? ¿Será el popote o el hielo? ¿O quizás soy yo? No sé, Diego, pero vámonos, ¿no? El ¿Por qué esto sabe tan bien, Deal? Un refresco de cualquier tamaño por un dólar. Solo en el $1-$2 menu de McDonald's. Precios y participación pueden variar. No se puede combinar con cualquier otro oferta o cambio. Mío, Coca-Cola es una marca registrada de The Coca-Cola Company. You're listening to Hayes Radio Network, Cannabis Lifestyle Radio. Business of Cannabis is brought to you by Cash Tech Currency Products, North America's leading cash management provider for cannabis retailers. Cash recyclers, smart safes, software and services. Cash Tech has everything the cannabis retailer needs to track, manage, and secure the cash earned in the dispensary. Don't take chances with your cash. Call Cash Tech and solve the problem. Visit www.cashtechcurrency.com to learn more. You're listening to Hayes Radio Network, Cannabis Lifestyle Radio. This is the business of cannabis. Welcome to the business of cannabis. And today we'll be speaking to more of the leading figures in the retail cannabis industry. I'm your host, uh, David Skye, and I'm joined by my co-host, Matt Cook, for a couple of the interviews. Uh, Matt and I will be speaking to Stuart Lutterman from Brothers Processing. And Stuart will talk to us about payments. Uh, and with the difficulty in banking, uh, payments remain a, a significant challenge uh, for many retailers. Uh, next, I speak to Louis Antonakis, who's the owner and operator of Olympia Cannabis. And Louis will uh, take us through what it's like to grow quickly from one to seven dispensaries. And finally, uh, we speak to Jake Kuzarek, and he's with the Arcview Group. Arcview is a significant longtime player in the space, uh, uh, raising money, investing, brokerage, consulting. Uh, Jake will give us sort of a North American spec- uh, perspective on the uh, state of the industry. So let's get started. Welcome. We're here with uh, Stuart Luterman 
from Brothers Processing. Uh, welcome, Stuart. Thank you. Glad to be here. So Stuart is with, uh, he's the uh, founder and CEO of Brothers Processing. Stuart, why don't you tell us a bit about Brothers Processing? Uh, well, first of all, Brother Processing just had its like 10 year anniversary. Um, and congratulations. It, yes, congratulations. Look at that. I didn't know. Thank you. Um, and it began when I worked at a big corporate company in the industry, learned the industry, and realized why aren't I doing this for myself? Um, and, and so forth. So, um, Brother Processing was founded with my brother as well at the time, and hence our name, Brother Processing. But the name Brother Processing also came with our family-oriented sort of mentality type of thing with our clients. Um, and really what we strive for is we're not going to come in the door and say, oh, we have the best rates, we have the best fees, uh, which every other Harry, Dick, and Tom focus on. Uh, what we focus on, especially in this, uh, you know, new niche that we have found is, you know, what's important is we find a solution that they don't have to look over their shoulder for uh, and worry that an account's going to be shut down and so forth. Um, as that happens every day with, you know, Stripe, PayPal, Square, and, you know, all those third-party vendors and so forth. Uh, yeah, that's been a big problem in this industry, so... Maybe, maybe yeah. uh, later you can expand on that. Yeah, well, we really try to educate our clients and consult with them. And that's what the discussions are about. They're not about pricing. They're about how to make sure that you have a solution to accept payments that has longevity, to, you know, to say the most. So how did you end up in the cannabis industry? You said that you know, you said, why am I not doing this for myself? Maybe walk us through that a little bit. Well, definitely uh, the getting into the cannabis industry is only about two and a half years now that I've been focusing on this niche. And honestly, the real story behind it is I had sold the house. I had made some money and I said, okay, I'm going to put this into, um, some stocks and then all of a sudden people started talking to me about the marijuana stocks and that was you know pre-legalization and so next thing you know i'm doing a lot of research i'm uh, you know investing into some of the big names like canopy growth and aurora and afria and um and so forth so um once we we're able to hear um, exactly that there's a niche here that sort of needs some attention because uh, of the stigma of the, uh, of the industry uh, in cannabis and with most of the banks not wanting to deal with it, even if it is an illegal uh, setting type of thing. So, um, you know, we got into this because we saw that there was a need and that we were able to help people, but not just with payments. So the bigger picture, which you know I can talk about a little bit after, is helping these people in any way, shape, or form we can, whether that's finding them a marketer, whether that's liking a Google review, uh, whether it's liking their Facebook page, whatever it is that we can do to think outside of the box, to bring value to the table, 
because we're not here to just sign up these clients. Thank you very much and never speak to you again. I've actually uh, are in touch with my clients uh, at least once a quarter type of thing. And the biggest and, and most rewarding part of this niche is A, the people really appreciate the, the service and the information. And I joke about it, but I've gotten so many gifts from different dispensaries and different CBD companies because they were just so happy that I was able to find them a solution to accept payments and they didn't have to look over their shoulder. Yeah, and uh, we hear that all the time as well. Uh, so that's great. So tell me what choices uh, do cannabis dispensaries have when it comes to accepting non-cash payments? Well, we're going to have to divide that up because we work on both sides of the border in Canada. That's fine. And yep. the US. Um, in Canada, anybody who is a licensed retail dispensary or an LP, they're able to go with your typical tier one type of bank, um, you know, like a Moneris or, a, you know, Elevon or uh, First Data, and they really won't have much issues, except they get, um, they get, you know, stemmed out for a $500 high risk fee. Um, and the underwriting process just takes a little bit longer. But as long as they have their license and everything's in order, then most of the major banks will go near them. But there's definitely uh, a few. I believe TD is one. I believe Desjardins is another. Uh, that even though it's fully legal and everything like that, they don't want to go near the business because of the stigma of the industry which they obviously think that will affect their current clients. Um, so that being said, in Canada, uh, we're able to help anybody with that, um, and they do have more choices. And then we work also with uh, dispensaries that are in the First Nations, and that's really been a big market for us. Um, and I guess you can call it the gray area, but really in the reserves, they have their own rules and their own laws and so forth, and they don't have people knocking on their doors. So we have an interact solution in Canada, uh, which we have the ability to place, give these services to these dispensaries in the reserves, as long as they have a legitimate business uh, and a legitimate bank account. Um, so that's proven to help uh, a lot of these dispensaries, A, to get rid of their issue of cash, and B, the cherry on top is now all of a sudden people are spending more money because they're not just counting on the cash they have in their pocket or the cash they get out of an ATM and, you know, uh, once they have their debit card, oh, you know what, you know, I have that money in my account, so I'll spend a little bit more. So we've definitely noticed this is an average. I mean, we've seen it as high as 300% throughout COVID, but the average of people who start using our Interact solution, sales increased by 25%. Um, but I'll give you just a quick example of a year ago, a dispensary uh, chain uh, in BC went from two locations in the past year to nine locations. So, you know, the growth is there uh, and, you know, the, the need for the payment is there, especially when, you know, you just can't deal with Visa and MasterCard. 
And the big plus about all this is even in regular uh, retail license uh, that can get a regular merchant account with Visa and MasterCard, 85% of their volume, as we've studied their statements and, and see what type of cards they're using, is interact. And one of the main reasons for that is confidentiality to the transaction. And people, you know, might not want, if they share a credit card, a husband and wife, to see, uh, oh, they bought $300 of marijuana, and then they see it on the credit card and so forth, where with an interact transaction, it doesn't appear like that. Mm -hmm. um, and the last thing I'll mention to that, it's uh, the American government, when we did go legal, instilled a fear into Canadians that, you know, if they feel that they're coming into the United States with marijuana or with the intention to sell or anything like that, they have the ability to subpoena their credit card statements, but not their bank statements. Now, I don't know what that was. That was over two years ago that that was done. But like I said, meanwhile, Interact seems to be that seemed to, uh, you know, the payment of choice. Obviously, you go into a clothing store and it's going to be the complete opposite. They're going to have 80 or 85 percent Visa and MasterCard and maybe, you know, 15 or 20 percent um, Interact. And uh, in Canada as well, when it comes to CBD merchants or cannabis related merchants, whether that be paraphernalia, uh, you know, the bongs or any of that type of stuff, we work with the only bank in Canada that will board that type of stuff online. And it's been a great solution. Obviously, we're not the only one that works with that bank, um, but we've been working with them for about two and a half years. We were one of the first uh, ISOs or resellers for that bank. And today, the, the, you know, the plus is I know what these underwriters are looking for when we're submitting applications. So we do get a lot of inquiries of people, like I said, who have been shut down by Shopify, PayPal, or Square, and they didn't know any better. And, uh, you know, next thing you know, we get them an account and they're able to process and their business is saved. They, they have an online company that you need to accept credit cards. So um, we're able to do it in most situations uh, and so forth. And in the, uh, I'll skip very quickly right to the United States, um, for dispensaries who are licensed, we don't have any real solution for anybody in First Nations in the U.S. right now. But we work with the you know, licensed dispensaries across the United States. And right now we work with a solution which is called a cashless ATM. And it basically works like an ATM. And, but instead of the money being withdrawn from a machine, the debit card that's being used for the, the transaction, the money's actually through a terminal going into the merchant's bank account. So we're, we're helping them with the cash issue. They do not pay anything for that transaction. It acts like an ATM transaction. So the client uh, is the one that pays that $3 surcharge, for example. Um, but of course, there are choices in those situations where the I've had merchants say, well, can I pay a dollar of that $3? Because I don't want my clients to spend three. I only want them to spend two. Um, or some merchants are, well, can we charge $4 and can I make a dollar? So we've seen both sides of it. 
Um, and it's the same thing in the US, except in the US, we work with about five or six different banks that focus on cannabis uh, uh, related. And then there's three banks that uh, focus on CBD. So um, that's where we uh, stand as far as the choices they have. And they're only going to become more and more. But I can tell you a year ago, I didn't, we didn't have all these choices and things weren't as smooth mm. and people were just driving themselves nuts. And yeah. That's it. Yeah. And we're, yeah. We're, we're, we're hearing the same thing. Um, so thanks for that. So tell me, Stuart, what are your plans for the future um, as it relates to Brothers Processing? Um, you know, we, we uh, took on, I took on a, a new venture recently where I took on some partners who, who have been in the industry as well for a while. But when they heard the niche that I was focusing on, like, hmm, we seem to know a lot of people and seem to have contacts. And we basically teamed up with the venture of focusing on this cannabis industry. And today, I mean, if you Google, you know, Canada credit card processing for cannabis, you know, we have a very good presence on Google right away. So we're trying to create a footprint in the cannabis industry on both sides of the border. And we're starting now. Um, and I believe it's still the beginning and it's still fresh for everything. Um, and in five years, you know, we want to be that company that has anything to do with cannabis merchants or dispensaries or CBD or the paraphernalia, whatever it is, or the vape or all that stuff that we're the company to come see, because maybe at that point, yes, we'll, we'll, we will, we won't treat uh, startups different than we do someone doing, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a month. And uh, that we will bring a lot of other added values to the table, which we can definitely talk about next time. But we don't want to just be uh, someone who provides payments for these businesses. We want to provide other tools and so solutions and little things like I was talking about, you know, doing a Google review uh, or liking a Facebook page. Um, we want to do all these things to help these merchants because at the end of the day, um, you know, our motto is, and it's really not, not to sound corny, but their success is my success. So obviously we have our best interest in mind to make sure that our clients are happy. And if they run into any challenges that we have solutions for them as well. Yeah, and, and I, I, I concur with that. And I think that's why we're here is we're here to elevate um, the knowledge of everyone in the industry and, and hopefully make everything uh, easier for people to operate uh, in this ever changing um, and very, um, you know, interesting uh, business uh, as it stands right now. Uh, Stuart, uh, from, uh, uh, from Brothers Processing, thank you so much for being on the show today and really appreciate your time. And hopefully we'll, we'll talk again soon. My pleasure. It was a pleasure to uh, get a chance to talk about this type of stuff um, because we just have to keep helping each other and we're all fighting the same battle. So thanks Stuart. Stuart thanks. Luderman from Brothers Processing. Thanks very much.
The Business of Cannabis is brought to you by Cash Tech Currency Products, North America's leading cash management provider for cannabis retailers. Cash recyclers, smart safes, software and services, Cash Tech has everything the cannabis retailer needs to track, manage, and secure the cash earned in the dispensary. Don't take chances with your cash. Call Cash Tech and solve the problem. Visit www.cashtechcurrency.com to learn more. Welcome back. This is the business of cannabis, and we're pretty excited to have our next guest. This is Louis Antonakis. He is the owner and operator of Olympia Cannabis, which is a chain of, uh, will be a chain of up to seven locations over the next little while. Louis has a a fascinating background, uh, restaurant business, real estate, nightclub owner, and a mayor of uh, Carlton Place, which... uh, which was the uh, which is in Ontario, Canada, um, and Louis's background brings it, I, I believe, a, a unique understanding of the challenges facing dispensary owners, and that's why we're grateful he's made the time to speak to us. Welcome, Louis. Dave, it's a pleasure to be on the show, and always good to talk to you. Well, let's just jump right into that because it is an interesting story. Uh, give give me the background to the Olympia story and how how you got involved uh, in in this space. Right. Well, um, my family have uh, been involved in the service industry um, for over 50 years. They started my mom and dad, uh, and uh, they immigrated uh, to Canada from uh, Europe, uh, Greece particularly. And uh, they settled in a beautiful small town in Carlton Place, had a very successful restaurant called the Olympia Restaurant. And over a series of uh, events, it was sold and and uh, afterwards remained vacant. Um, I was uh, involved in my community as a elected official. I served 12 years and uh, I saw our communities across Ontario really having some difficulty uh, keeping up with the box stores and just redevelopment in general um, across the landscape. So through my work as an elected official um, and being aware that the feds were coming in with the legalization of cannabis, I realized that there was an opportunity, an opportunity for both um, people like myself who are entrepreneurial and who like new things, new challenges, and also for um, the country, uh, generally speaking, um, something that's new, uh, hadn't been, um, uh, you know, it's, it's not like we had uh, a series of uh, restaurants. It's, it's something that was brand new to our, to our country, uh, one of the first in the world, actually. So I saw that opportunity and I decided to um, to enter it and uh, locate the our first location in downtown Carlton Place. It's a community of around twelve thousand people. We were the first uh, legal cannabis store in on in uh, Lanark County, and we are today uh, getting ready to uh, go through our final inspection of our second location in a small community uh, in uh, just outside of uh, um, near the four hundred one in Tweed. So that's interesting. Yeah. So for those for those of people story. listening who uh, who aren't uh, this this is in Canada. This is just a, sort of a community, a couple few hours outside of Toronto. So Correct. it's a small. These are small towns. Is that your growth strategy to focus on maybe smaller uh, geographic 
locations or, or are there plans to maybe go into a larger urban setting? We, what, are you, what are your thoughts? Our, our rollout is um, obviously started in Carlton Place. It's my hometown. I know it well. And we are branching out from there. Carlton Place is the epicenter of our operation. We do have uh, seven in the queue right now. One of them is located in downtown Ottawa. And uh, yes, uh, primarily we are focused, focused on small town Ontario population from 20,000 down to two to 3,000 people. Um, so that's, that's where we stand now as, you know, as we expand and, and, and look towards the future. I think uh, some of the bigger cities could be in play, but there are some very specific challenges right now in the larger centers. You're seeing that in big cities like Toronto, Young Street, Bloor Street, uh, fairly high concentration of stores. And I think I think it's going to be a, a significant challenge for some of the existing operators. Mm. Uh, so let's let's here. ask about like you started with one the one place in Carl, the one location in Carl's place. What was the biggest challenge you faced opening that? And then jump to me. Okay, now what was the biggest challenge opening a second one? Right. Or or, or, or was there a difference? Yeah, they're 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 somewhat similar. Um, obviously, capital is a significant challenge. We're we're seeing that the uh, the big banks, uh, the chartered banks, are not uh, allowing cannabis to be part of their financing uh, portfolio. That's um, terrible. There's only one that I'm aware of, which is which is the Bank of Montreal, and it's a very uh, expensive fee, non-refundable fee, just to get in. Uh, there's another bank that many of the stores are using. It's called um, Alterna Bank. They're a little bit more lenient and accepting of cannabis, but that is a big one right there. If you can't self-finance or find the investors that'll take that gamble and take that risk, it is an uphill battle. Uh, mm. Once you've secured the financing, there's a series of other regulatory hurdles that you have to go to. You've got to uh, first get approved to sell cannabis that's an individual thing and once you go through that process took me a year from start to finish and the second phase of that year was getting your location license they call that an rsa and that's was around six months now it's shortened down to about two to three months if you got all your all your ducks in order as they say but uh you know, it, it, it encompasses everything, Dave, from the financing, from finding the right location, negotiating your lease, hiring your staff, having a management team, ordering product from the Ontario Cannabis Store. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a challenge. So are you, sure, are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> well, what are you doing? It's certainly, not, it's certainly not for everyone. There's no question about it. Right, but um, for me, I like dealing with people. Uh, as I said at the onset of the show, I've always um, been involved with the service industry. Um, those are the people that are my friends, they're my social network, and uh, I just I just love solving problems, and and doing so sometimes helping helping people, and uh, I find this this industry is about solving problems. And uh, that's that's the challenge that I like. I like solving problems and taking care of people who um, who need who need help. And for me, that's 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 why I do it. It's a uh, it's in, well, cannabis is fascinating because it's it's an industry that grow that sort of grew up overnight because of legalization. So I can't think of, since prohibition, I can't think of another industry where it it didn't exist and now it does exist. I mean, it existed yeah. on the illicit market, obviously. 
Uh, yeah. But also the potential. Uh, there aren't too many industries where you go, what's going to happen? What's going to happen in the future? Um, you've alluded to some of the some of the challenges, but yet you're expanding. So, what is it about the industry that you're hopeful for? Let's let you know. Turn it to the positive. What What do you see happening over the next five years that would justify this kind of investment and effort? The Feds had to um, to to roll this out in a way that was. Um... Uh, you know they had to be careful about this because this is the new... Canadian government, by the way. For the exactly, for those, exactly, for those. and and to the province to some extent as well. Um, they, they had to be careful. It was new to them, and they wanted to make sure that uh, it was done in a safe, efficient, and um, and in a way that you know protects the industry in the long term. Uh, there was some 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 deviations from the beginning where they had the lottery system, and then they opened it up. So I guess what I'm hopeful for, Dave, is that the the federal government working together with the provincial government starts to expand um, the product offerings and uh, allow us as entrepreneurs to to uh, to take this where it can go and uh, you know I see cannabis cannabis products come home to happiness when you adopt or foster a pet pets don't care if you've forgotten your social skills this past year they just want your love. Pets are loyal best friends to come home to. Furry companions you're eager to hug. They offer unlimited snuggles and unconditional love. It's true, pets make our lives better. And right now, with animal shelters under strain, they need your help. Make a life-saving difference. Open your heart and home to a pet. For a week or a lifetime, visit bestfriends.org. Um, you know, whether that's whether that's topical creams or you're seeing the edibles uh, come into play now, people are getting quite... Uh, uh, you know, supporting the edibles, the drinks. So it's, it's rolling out slowly. The province is doing the best they can along with the federal government, but we, we'd like to see it speed up a little bit and ease up mm-hmm. on some of the regulatory hurdles, put some legislation in place where so our chartered banks have to, have to allow us to, to borrow capital. Uh, you know, w- without those kinds of, um, uh, uh, um, you know, in, intervention yeah, without, or, without the or, capital support, it is an uphill battle for in any yeah. business. I mean, at the end of the day, cannabis is a business. Uh, it it's is. unique, but it's no different than you allude, You know, a, a restaurant. You have costs, expenses. You have and it's plans, legal. You know, Dave, it's, it's legal. legal. <laughs> yeah, it is so, a funny. It's a funny thing. Um, yeah. The reticence around the financial institution, but you know. Let me let me jump on something you just uh, mentioned on the on the product side. Uh, from even the short you know time you've been in business, is it getting? Do you find it getting better? Do you find uh, the the choice and quality um, sort of leveled off? Uh, do you do you see opportunity for growth there? What's happening there? Because at the end of the day, I mean that's why people are coming. The 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 variety and the of the product you're offering and the choices. Yeah, they're uh, they're definitely uh, moving in the right direction. As I said, they started with the uh, flour, the oils, the CBDs, uh, topicals. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's really the the LP world, the licensed producers. Those those are the the groups that are going to drive that. The research, the development, the investment in that industry, as retailers. All we can do, at least in Ontario, is hope that the the OCS, the province, um, 
is encouraging the licensed producers to develop and bring these items to market so that we can buy them and bring them into our stores and offer them to our patrons, our customers. So uh, there has been some movement. Uh, you're seeing now some product uh, being developed um, for for our pets, for dogs. Wow. For, yes, um, I've read that. Yeah. Right. So these some are lucky the kinds dogs. Of things. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> we all need a little bit of help. Yeah. Dave. Some very spoiled <laughs> dogs are about to uh, get a good Christmas, maybe. You get a dog bone and you get a little, yeah, bit, of, uh, yeah. little bit of oil to go with that. Yeah. But uh, in all seriousness, though, this is a very serious item for a lot of pet owners where you're seeing their pets uh, developing anxiety and, you know, just just not. Oh, totally. Not, yeah. yeah. So, you know, those kinds of things, I think, are going to are that's what's going to drive our industry is is everyone working together and bringing new, exciting uh, products to market, be it health or recreation. Uh, that's what's going to drive our mm. business and power the economy, quite frankly, because right now these are difficult times for any business. You've seen the, the restaurant industry decimated through this uh, crisis, the pandemic. So, you know, those are the right. new jobs. That's that's what's going to power us out of this this um, these unprecedented times that we're living in. Let's talk a bit about your clientele. It, it, would you say... Is CBD, uh, has that been a, a useful product for you? Is it more of the medicinal kind of side of things? Is it more of the THC rec, rec side? Is it all of the above? What, what has been your experience? It's all of the above. I, oh, okay. I mean, I was, I, I was a little bit reticent about, you know, what kind of um, business model we would have. There weren't that many in the province to, to do some um, to research on. So we really went into it not knowing. Um, obviously, we're on the rec side. Uh, but we're seeing people come in um, using everything. And the average age as well has surprised me. I thought yeah. that we'd be having 10, 19, 20, 21, 22 year olds coming into our store. And, and in fact, it's the opposite. Sure, we've got uh, our youth, uh, you know, 19, 20, 20 and up. But a lot of our clientele are, um, I hate to say it, Dave, but they're, they're our age. They're in the 50s. So young and, and vigorous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, it's quite interesting seeing a store full of um, basically your community. You're, I mean, everyone's there. Our seniors are there. Uh, the boomers are there. The middle age, every, everyone is in the store. And they're all coming in for different reasons. So it's, 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 it's actually a nice, nice uh, surprise, um, you know, as a new retailer to be, uh, to be, be opening a business that can serve uh, your entire community, not not just you know some of the stigma that's attached to cannabis and cannabis products. Well, it's it's pretty inspiring. It's pretty cool to hear a, a, a say a, a small businessman entrepreneur that's growing, and you know start with one store, seven. I don't you know what other industries are op- offering those kind of opportunities. Mm-hmm. I can't really think of one. Um, yeah. Try opening seven restaurants uh yeah. and see how that goes it's tough um yeah. and yet you're you're doing it uh so that's amazing let me ask you one last question as we as always seem to running running out of time just to get going um what is the most what was the most surprising thing of your journey so far if you look back and went, wow i did not expect that uh what, what would that be i i think the most surprising would be the um diversity in our clientele 
I think that 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 shocked me what more than okay. anything. Yeah, we kind of covered it already. Um, and also, a marketing uh, is that a marketing challenge? Then, like that means you have to try to sell to a whole diverse group of people. It's not like I can make my store uh, suitable for just young people, or I can make it yeah. for like that means you have to appeal to a lot of different people from a different places yeah. in life. Yeah. The Stages education. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The education component is a, a huge, and there is an appetite for that. I, you know, we're finding our clients are coming in saying, "Hey, you know, can you tell me about this?" or "I've read about this," and um, so that's 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 a big part of it. And thankfully, we have the internet, um, so that you know people can can a find you, which is always important. Um, and with the various social media platforms, you know, people know very quickly you're in town and you've opened. So that 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 that's kind of covered um, from from letting your community know um, the education side. Uh, you know, we take a lot of pride in customer service and making sure that we're giving, um, you know, the information that our customers need to make informed decisions. Um, so, so, yeah, Louis, let me uh, jump in here. We're, we're a little out of time, but that uh, I think it's a great story for uh, an inspiration for, you know, smaller chains great opportunity. And it's interesting you focused on this smaller town model uh, as an opportunity there. And, and although, you know, so if you're in Carlton Place, drop by to Olympia Cannabis or soon to be uh, in, in Tweed. And then you mentioned Ottawa potentially and in, 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 in seven locations across uh, Ontario. Um, that was a pleasure, Dave. Thank you very much. This is great and uh, good luck. And, uh, and we'll have to check back in with you uh, in a little bit and see how you're doing. Good luck to you as well, Dave. Thanks very take much care. for the opportunity Bye-bye. and uh, take care. Bye-bye now. The Business of Cannabis is brought to you by Cash Tech Currency Products, North America's leading cash management provider for cannabis retailers. Cash recyclers, smart safes, software and services, Cash Tech has everything the cannabis retailer needs to track, manage, and secure the cash earned in the dispensary. Don't take chances with your cash. Call Cash Tech and solve the problem. Visit www.cashtechcurrency.com to learn more. So welcome back to the show. We are excited about our next guest, Jake Kuzarek from ArcView Group. And um, Jake is VP of Business Development and Managing Director of the uh, Management Consulting side. So those are titles that kind of hint at his deep experience. Um, He did take his time getting into the industry, clothing, music streaming, blockchain, I've got entertainment, And the most interesting thing of all, starting a league for giant fighting robots. I'm not sure we're not going to just talk about that, but eventually. I want to to spend a whole show (laughs) just on that. Yeah, that's that's an hour (laughs) special. Uh, But eventually migrates into cannabis, which is cool, uh, with ArcView Group, which is a leading investor consulting group. And it's an honor to have you on the show. Welcome. Dave, appreciate you having me on uh, on Hayes Radio and and really happy that you, uh, you started this up. This is going to be fun. So uh, why don't we just start in, in a general sense? What is the ArcView Group? You guys do so much. Give us an overview, fifty thousand feet, and then we'll 
dive down. And... 50,000 feet is always hard. We do a lot. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you, we've been around for uh, now over 10 years, known as the, you know, primarily uh, over the years as the largest and oldest cannabis investor network. So everybody from Ease to Meadow to Tokyo Smoke raised their initial capital through us, you know, well north of 300 plus million deployed into 200 plus companies. You know, we bring together the investor network together with companies seeking capital, usually at four events throughout the year. And along the way, we started publishing the industry leading research. Now, everything changed about two years ago when we were acquired by Entourage Effect Capital. We got our fund up and running. That's ArcView Ventures, our FINRA SEC approved broker dealer up and running. That's ArcView Capital. And of course, I spearheaded the launch of ArcView Management Consulting, uh, which is our consultancy that helps everybody from early stage companies uh, to large you know, enterprises. Um, you know, navigate the cannabis ecosystem, everything from building SOPs for dispensaries to allow them to expand to, you know, to new markets, doing some due diligence, license procurement, valuation work, full go-to-market strategies. Uh, needless to say, that takes up a lot of my day-to-day. -day. Uh, and of course, ArcView, being so heavily tied to content, uh, is still pumping out weekly webinars, um, everything from, you know, our ArcView accesses, which are on a general topic, topic uh, to more kind of state or region specific uh, type of content as well. We also have our women's inclusion network. We also have an accelerator uh, that I'm managing director of in conjunction with Founder Institute um, for primarily cannabis companies. Um, but yeah, let me let me pause there. That's, that's okay. Enough. I was going to say enough. It's <laughs> um, wow. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a, an amazing company. That's why it we're, we're happy you came on. Let's focus a little bit first on the consulting aspect of it. I'm a dispensary. I'm a chain. What's interesting about this industry is no one isn't planning on growing. It's not right. true of a lot of industries. That might, I, I, we know that's not going to be true. Not everyone's going to grow and be successful, but everyone's planning on it now. What are you seeing that people are doing really well? And you go, wow, that, that, yeah, I'm seeing that. I'm, and then what are, what are some mistakes, some things that are, people are tripping up on? All right, great. That's a great question. I'd say in a uh, COVID or post-COVID world, uh, depending on how you Let's assume at, a post-COVID world because oh, COVID post -COVID was not, no one, no one had COVID in their business plan and yeah. fair enough. I'll tell you, many, many Post-COVID and normal, uh, yeah. Many of these consumers obviously, uh, you know, are trying to limit human, human interaction. Um, of course, being able to also limit, you know, cash, you know, cash is, is seen as dirty and, and carrying, you know, potential particles there that could, uh, could make you sick. Uh, so switching to cashless, cashless solutions has been big. You know, the companies like uh, Kaliba. So Kaliba is a great example of when COVID hit, uh, they opened up curbs curbside delivery. That led, I think that led to a 600x increase in net new members of their collective. Um, and for those who don't know, they're a large vertically integrated uh, operator in, in, you know, in, in California. You know, Jay-Z's monogram brand and stuff is, is kind of in conjunction with them. Um, but I'll tell you, you know, they were smart for getting on the curbside and, and delivery pickup quickly. I mean, adding you know, 600x yeah. to their members is, is nothing to be sneezed at. You know, and I'll tell you, you know, the other side of this that we're seeing is just being able to get, um, you know, get a location set up in an emerging territory. You know, it's it's the battles are still being fought at the local level in some of these municipalities where some, you know, case in point, towns like Fresno, you know, and here in California that, you know, they're told one week they have the green light and, and you should snap up a building and get ready to uh, to open it. 
And then they're told, well, maybe hold on to it and we'll let you know next January what we want you to do. So there's a lot of this push pull dealing with the that's on the crazy side. Yeah, that's I, that's the company I mentor for uh, has been going through that exact experience. But um, it's just you know hearing the mixed messaging and you know unfortunately trying to you know make sure your your existing retail location is successful yet still starting to think about those those next moves. Um, and the biggest thing thing we see is really turning over the keys and, and letting else somebody letting somebody else run the operation. Uh, that seems to be, you know, one of the hardest areas here is, you know, whoever started it often kind of wants to retain full control, make sure that they still have an eye on, on anything that might go awry. So is HR a huge, huge problem? Like getting people, training them, skilled people. I mean, like, you know, I know it's, and that's COVID related. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine that's not exacerbated in the cannabis space. You know, and, and that does kind of harken back to what I was saying about, um, you know, in, in kind of emerging territories and how they struggle with personnel. Uh, case in point, you know, we have a client uh, from our consultancy that's, that's in, in Oklahoma. And, you know, their biggest pain point is they cannot find quality retail workers that can have to, to stay around, especially those who are vertically integrated, those who are doing cultivation, finding people with real cultivation experience that want to stay in that area, even if it's a little bit more remote. Uh, is a big challenge. So always retaining talent, uh, attracting experienced seasoned talent, not just cannabis enthusiasts, but those who actually understand the endocannabinoid system and, you know, and terpenes. And uh, I'll tell you, you know, that, that's a, certainly a big part of it. But on the HR side, fortunately, there is some, you know, some quality training out there put out by everybody from Oaksterdam to Greenflower Media. I mean, we're just scratching the surface with regards to making sure that anybody, regardless of their role at a, a retail location, knows what they should be doing in their day-to-day. So, yes, and, and I can I can see, I'm, one day I see people going to university, there'll, there'll be programs, so this is, there'll be careers, maybe we're not, we're not there yet. Oh, there, there. It's definitely careers. Oh, no, no, we're there. We're yeah. definitely there, yeah. Maybe in yeah. California, that's okay. I stand corrected. So uh, yeah. take us a bit about, let's let's uh, move on, like the investing environment. What's that like yes. right now? Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd say, and you'll hear this from pretty much anybody you talk to that's on the, uh, the side of the table, but we really are in the age of M&A right now. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty insane, um, you know, watching what's the, the activity in the last year, you know, even last six months. Um, where the big want to grow bigger and they have shareholders and they have stakeholders that need to see, you know, need to see expansion, need to see movement. So it is a little bit of an arms race right now with, you know, everything from vertically integrated, um, you know, retailers and, and brands out there trying to snap up and vertically integrate as much as their shelf space as possible and own these brands that they're actually working with. You know, it's acquiring other, you know, dispensary locations. So, you know, it's not enough to just own San Francisco, but, you know, you want to own the East Bay and you want to own the South Bay. <laughs> uh, it's a little bit of an arms race. So, and it's not just the, uh, the large MSOs and the biggest players at the table that are doing this. You know, I see a lot of very small Canadian publics with very small caps, um, you know, coming down here and, and trying to acquire, you know, as, as many brands as they possibly can. Sometimes all stock deals, sometimes a mix of stock and cash, um, but it's it's a completely different environment. I mean, I see companies that have done maybe 10,000 a month in sales. I've seen one company that's wow. only sold 1,400 products to date and they're getting acquisition <laughs> offers because they have a great story. 
Uh, so the story means a lot. Having the brand means a lot. I even, you know, have heard through the grape grapevine, uh, one of these, these operators is pursuing an acquisition just to give his team something different to work on, something that, they, that gets them excited again, a company that's aligned with their values. So that's, that's what you're seeing on the front lines. Um, certainly, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of smaller private investor dollars continuing to flow, uh, while most of them were on pause during 2020 to see how things really, really shook out. Um, a lot of investors were burned and coming out of 2018, 2019, uh, investing in projects that were talking a big game with their, <laughs> with what they thought they could return, uh, but ultimately really failed to produce the yields. Um, you know, if it was on the, the cultivation side that they were shooting for, uh, or you know, just get the the sales traction that they were hoping for as a brand. Um, so yeah, I guess after an age of companies making very, very big claims about what they thought they could be doing from a revenue perspective, we saw a real pullback, had investors a little bit more sitting on their hands. Um, but now we've really started to see that, that, that come to an end. Um, and certainly, you know, as, as mentioned, those with a good story or good traction or who are being innovative uh, are starting to get the looks from investors or potential acquirers. What would you say, because you, you kind of finished with, okay, if you wanted to be acquired, what do you need to do? That was part of your business plan. So what does, flesh that out a bit. What is it, you're, you're, you're building a dispensary, you have a nice business. What do you need to do over the next 12 months, 18 months to even be a candidate for acquisition? You said yeah. be innovative. What does that mean in real well, term? You know, it's, it's ultimately, uh, it's, it's, you know, the bar has been, uh, has been lowered, you know, I think as you, you know, we, I talked to, I don't want to name any names, but you know, some of these very large chains of dispensaries and they are hungry. They are saying, I don't care if the dispensary is doing, you know, 150 a month, 200 a month. I mean, certainly something that's, that's on the low end and even very rural communities, um, they, they see that as another number and a new territory that they can truly own as the big players in, in that respective town. Um, so I'll tell you, you know, it, being innovative is certainly part of it, but being well networked is really coming to be, uh, okay. coming to be a little bit even more valuable. Um, you know, it's, it's just about getting out there and making them aware of, of what you have available. Um, you know, there is strength in numbers. If you, you're able to tie in with another and, you know, acquire and, and make your own empire a little bit larger, that's only going to make you more attractive to one of the biggest players, you know, the curious of the world to come in and acquire you. Um, of course, you know, as mentioned, you know, the vertical integration goes a long way. Um, if you have products on your shelves that are unique to your retailer, you know, your own internal products, uh, we do see that go that goes a long way, uh, as many of these acquirers are motivated by more brands. Um, so I'll tell you, if you're, you don't have delivery, you don't have curbside, um, you know, but you live in an area where this is permitted, uh, it's time to start thinking about it. Um, and of course, you know, it's, it's time to also just get out there and, and get creative with regards to, um, you know, uh, you know, I'd say kind of uncovering new territory and, and, and being innovative. And the way I see that is often through social equity initiatives. I mean, I've even seen, you know, municipalities that want to spin up their own community run dispensaries to benefit the local community and get the local community back to work. I mean, this is the age that we're in now. So. So just to follow up on that, Jake, it, you know, I've also spoken with a number of uh, dispensary owners that are concerned about, um, you know, oversaturation in certain markets. Can you speak to that? 
Yeah, of course. And, and you know, certainly I'm, I'm somebody who lives down here in Los Angeles and, you know, it's, it's very oversaturated yeah. <laughs> with regards to retail. Uh, but the problem is you don't know which dispensaries are, are legitimate and which ones aren't, you know, we're plagued with a, an environment, which, yeah, in which it's, it's pretty night and day between some of these more uh, gray market operators and, uh, and, and what kind of products they are, are putting on their shelves um, versus going into a, um, you know, a, a stizzy or a lemonade or the artist tree. I mean, there are some beautiful dispensaries down here that, of course, are blending art and consumption mm -hmm. and food. And I mean, it's it's just a, a different ballgame down here. So I would say oversaturation, um, you know, is, is something that is a real concern. Um, but at the end of the day, like I said, by adding things like a, a consumption lounge, um, you know, adding stuff that, that gets uh, repeat customers. I mean, that's how you can stay increasingly more relevant, um, you know, instead of just being another that maybe legit, maybe it's not, but you know, yeah. you don't really have strong points of differentiation. No, it's great. So, um, this is basically one last question. We don't have a ton of time left, but, uh, you mentioned the events and all the education stuff you do take us through a bit of what events you have coming up. People want to get involved, like you said, network, learn what events there are you um, hosting over the next little while that people might be interested in. Sure. No, like like everybody else, we're starting to get close to getting back to in-person events. Uh, we are co, uh, I think we're just sponsoring an event out in the Hamptons coming up in about a month's time. Uh, starting, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's looking uh, like a pretty fancy event, uh, expecting, I think, about you know 500 or so people, which is pretty consistent with what they did. Uh, right before the pandemic with their previous uh, iteration. Um, but if you're interested in going out to the Hamptons, it seems like there's actually almost a week worth of different kinds of content. Um, everything from smaller happy hours that we're putting on. This is all kind of coming up a month from today. Um, so out here in California, we'll be doing some VIP dinners, um, some infused dinners. We'll be doing um, some more kind of networking and happy hour events. There's an HR conference we might be putting on with one of our strategic alliance partners in Colorado. Um, but I'll tell you, the way to find out about all this, both physical and digital events, is going to be arcviewaccess.com. Uh, you can also take a look at all of our replays of all of our past digital content. Um, but if, if we're announcing anything, you can take a look at the full calendar there uh, and see what we have coming up. But like everybody oh, else, Jake, you, you just made my job easy. You just made my yeah. job easier, so I didn't have to read the website. So yeah. thank you. Oh yeah, I just had a note. Make sure you mention the website. So we did. Um, anyway, uh, Jake, thank you very much. That that's a lot of great. It's very interesting. It's such a fascinating industry. It's unlike any other industry. You, you can't just open the dispensary. Like you, it's the bigger picture as well. But it's also the little picture. It's also little things like curbside, like innovating, like taking care of your staff, like hiring good people, educating. So caring and caring uh, inclusively, you know, right, that's a huge right. part of it. You want you want a dispensary staff that actually mimics the same, you know, the, kind of the same values, cultural diversity, and everything that your customers have as well. You want to make sure they feel comfortable. Um, so it's it's if you're are operating a dispensary, I challenge you, you know, put people to work uh, and put people to work that might not necessarily have had the opportunity uh, to get into this industry before now. That's a great way to end it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Jake. Um, Thanks, Jake. For coming on. And we're definitely going to have you back. That was, that was a lot. Uh, we have about three or four more shows of stuff to talk about. 
Well, there's nothing I love uh, <laughs> talking about more than the business. of And then the giant robots. We didn't even touch on that. I can't believe yeah, it. Yeah, I will get to I, that. I'm, I'm going to actually call you just to talk about that. Yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> uh, it's a two-hour special now. Anyway, yeah. you take care. <laughs> we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Thanks, Jake. Thank you again. Appreciate okay. it. Business of Cannabis is brought to you by Cash Tech Currency Products, North America's leading cash management provider for cannabis retailers. Cash recyclers, smart safes, software and services, Cash Tech has everything the cannabis retailer needs to track, manage, and secure the cash earned in the dispensary. Don't take chances with your cash. Call Cash Tech and solve the problem. Visit www.cashtechcurrency.com to learn more. Well, that's our show for today. I'd like to thank our guests for coming on and sharing their insights and invite you to tune in next week when once again we'll be talking to the movers and shakers in the world of cannabis, uh, keeping you up to date with what's happening in one of the most dynamic retail industries in North America. So until next week, be well. And this has been The Business of Cannabis. You're listening to Hayes Radio Network, Cannabis Lifestyle Radio. Come home to happiness when you adopt or foster a pet. Pets don't care if you've forgotten your social skills this past year. They just want your love. Pets are loyal best friends to come home to. Furry companions you're eager to hug. They offer unlimited snuggles and unconditional love. It's true. Pets make our lives better. And right now, with animal shelters under strain, they need your help. Make a life-saving difference. Open your heart and home to a pet. For a week or a lifetime, visit bestfriends.org. ¿Por qué esta Coca-Cola de McDonald's sabe tan bien? ¿Será la máquina? ¿Será el popote o el hielo? ¿O quizás soy yo? No sé, Diego, pero vámonos, ¿no? El ¿Por qué esto sabe tan bien, deal? Un refresco de cualquier tamaño por un dólar, solo en el $1-$2 menu de McDonald's. Precios y participación pueden variar. No se puede combinar con cualquier otro oferto. Cambo mío, Coca-Cola es una marca registrada de The Coca-Cola Company. episode please leave us a review on itunes to a beautiful day today and i'm todd devo and i've been involved in responding to emergencies and disasters since well 1989 
1999, I started my journey into the field of emergency management while I was working in the EMS in one of the most nations, one of those super active counties over there. And now I am working at Titan HST as the director of emergency management and we're providing communication solutions to everybody who needs them. So welcome to Business Continuity Today, where we will continue to learn together. Hey, real quick, you know, this this is going to be a little bit uh, of a different type of show today. Um, you know, we've been uh, talking about leadership and talking about how to get people prepared for, for you know, business-wise um, for disasters and how we can keep our businesses running. And I know we've gotten to the conversation a lot about COVID-19, uh, basically because this is what we're in. And however, you know, we have to be prepared for all sorts of disasters, including, you know, the, the floods and uh, that are happening in, in the Northeast right now. And also the um, stuff that's happening in Louisiana, uh, you know, the fires that are happening in California. So, I mean, we have lots of disasters, but uh, 20 years ago uh, this weekend or next week, I should say, so we want to look at it, um, September 11th. We all remember that day and, and what that really meant, not just for not just for the nation uh, on the day of the terrorist attack, uh, but for, for everybody that was alive and could remember that day. And I, and I just want to reflect really quickly on, on where I was. And, and I know that those of you that uh, remember that day can reflect exactly where you were. It's one of those things, you know, those, those monumental times in our life where we can almost recall where we're sitting, um, just like it's burned into our memory. And I was actually on my way to work um, in downtown Los Angeles and I worked at the Jefferson station for uh, doing EMS. And uh, it's you know about, oh, it's like a 30 minute, 40 minute drive from my house. And I used to go really, or super early. And when I was on the on-ramp uh, to the to the 605, the freeway they take, uh, the news report I turned on, I listened to talk radio. Yeah, I'm that guy. And the news report was coming in on a plane that hit the World Trade Center. And in my mind, the first thing I was thinking about was, oh, if a plane hit, it was probably like a Cessna or some sort of small craft like that because it's, it's happened in the past. Other, you know, the other skyscrapers have been hit by helicopters um, and by um, airplanes, you know, through the years. Um, I think like the first one was back in the 1930s when it hit, um, hit the Empire State Building. That was really what I was thinking. And then they were talking and talking about the, the fire that was going on and all those other things. And then as they were interviewing um, one of the, uh, some woman who was on the phone uh, with the newscasters and she just screams, Oh, the other, the other building just exploded. She didn't see the plane hit. She just said the other building just exploded. And then the reports came in that it was another plane. And at that point I was like, Oh man, I think, I think we're under attack. Um, I'm not the only one I'm sure had that feeling uh, as well uh, during that time. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because were we prepared uh, for for that attack or for any attack for that matter? You know, are we prepared today? Are we better prepared today? Do people listen more today? You know, and I think about the the younger people that are now working in the workforce, right? My son, he just turned, you know, that just turned, he's going to turn 19 here in December. You know, he he doesn't remember that day. Everything he learned from it was in the you know, textbooks or from stories that he's heard from from us right those of us that lived through it and and you know are are they prepared will they listen and it kind of goes back to and i know i, I talk about this guy a lot uh rick Roscola from um who's you know got everybody out of the world trade center on his on his floor uh basically because he was a thorn in the side of everybody and and really got people 
um, getting down uh, the stairs uh, during this time. And, and I think we need to be that. I think we need to be that thorn. I think we, those of us in this profession as emergency managers, as business continuity managers, uh, we need to be that thorn. We need to be the person who, who challenges um, the status quo of when we're doing emergency drills and people go, oh, I don't have time or I don't want to, or this is a waste of time or whatever their excuse or, or what, their, um, what their problem is with it. We have to really just not take no right? We cannot take no for, for an answer when it comes to these. We need to talk to our, you know, executives and our C-suite. If you're not part of the C-suite, you need to talk to the C-suite and get them on board. And I think that was the difference between with Morgan Stanley was their C-suite was on board. Their president of their, uh, of the company at that particular location was on board. Now there's a difference here that the World Trade Center was hit once before in the nineties. And, you know, so it wasn't the first time a terrorist attack was tried on, on the World Trade Center. And so this is why some businesses said, okay, yeah, we need to have a plan. The other thing is, is we need to really break that mold. And it still thinks it's here today of, of waiting for someone to give us the word. You know, and we just discussed this when it comes into wildland fires. You can smell, smell the fire. You can see the smoke. And we're still waiting for a government official to say to evacuate. Um, if you listen to the tapes from Paradise, you know, you hear people calling dispatch saying, hey, there's a fire. Is it near us? And should we evacuate? And so calling for permission to leave. Um, I, you know, I think that we shouldn't have to wait for that permission when it comes to safety. Right. And at the end of the day, if it ends up being that you evacuate for a small fire or for something that you feel is trivial, you know, just call it a live exercise. You know, you really get to practice that thing make it a positive, you know, do a report on that to say, Hey, this is what happened. This is what we could do better for next time. Um, and, and make it a live drill. If it ends up being a big, nothing, right. A big, nothing burger, you know, now I know there's a, there's a fine line between, you know, doing these things and being called, you know, a, uh, a warrior war or whatever name you want to put in there, or, you know, uh, the guy who called uh, wolf uh, too many times. Um, so I, I get that there's a, a problem with that. But at the end of the day, the more practice and the idea of being like a guy like Rick Roscola, being in the bullhorn, singing songs, getting people out of the room um, during practices, uh, I think really makes a big, 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 huge difference. Obviously, we have proof of it um, when the uh, real event uh, uh, does occur. You know, I, this day for me, I mean, I'm from New York originally. Um, although be it um, lived on Long Island and upstate, uh, not not necessarily in the city, uh, but I had friends and family that responded to to the World Trade Center on day one, on day zero, um, of of this event, and I had friends that were were in the rubber pile um, for a long time, you know, and sp- speaking to them and ha- hearing their stories and understanding what everybody went through, you know, it's, it's terrible, right? And so. Over the next few weeks after the after the event occurred, you know, we as Americans, were the world really, was a mix of anger, fear, and, and, and sadness, you know. And I think that we should understand that now, today, we have to re- we should reflect on how we felt on on nine twelve, right? And and what I mean by that is that we see that on nine twelve, we pretty much could have got anything that we needed to get anything we wanted when it came to preparedness and to response. And today we're seeing budgets cut throughout the, you know, 
work on college campuses, right? I tell the story how a, the president of, of one college uh, said that emergency management was a, was a position that could be cut because it had less friction uh, of being cut. And, and how do we make business continuity and emergency management uh, a piece that's very, 20 years ago, right? 20 years ago, we could have pointed to 9-11 and said, this is why we're important. You know, today, you know, now we're friction. Now it's, we're frictionless to cut this position of, of emergency management, you know? And so we have to really think about what this means and what we can do to, to really get in front of, of everybody again. So we can prevent deaths, needless deaths that can occur. And, you know, I think if everybody, and I shouldn't say it this way, because they're still, it's still a tragedy and people still would have perished. So, but I think if we had more people like Rick Scola, we probably could have reduced those numbers um, in the World Trade Center, uh, those that could have got out um, to get out and instead of shelter in place, which there was a lot of confusion going on that day, a lot of communication errors that were going on that day. Um, you know, that was the other side of it too, is when this thing event happened, uh, communication, self, self coverage went down, communication was hard. Um, there was no backup plan specifically, uh, for communications, uh, for people. And so, yeah, there was a bunch of different things that occurred on this day that really caused that confusion. And we need, we know this was the case, right? We all know that was the case. So let's take those lessons learned. Although it was 20 years ago, let's take those lessons that we learned from that and really apply them. Because what I think we do poorly and we say, oh, let's take the lessons learned and we don't apply those lessons. We didn't apply the lessons that we learned in Katrina to what happened in uh, Louisiana, right? We didn't take the lessons learned from Sandy and apply them to what happened in New York. They flooded again and had those issues, right? There's, we didn't take the lessons learned from September 11th necessarily and put them into to practice in your businesses. You know, as we reflect over these next couple of days, this next week, and we're going to see lots of documentaries and memorials for those that are lost. We should take that time to also reflect on how we're doing business um, as business continuity managers and emergency managers within our organization to see what we can do better, see if we can, what plans that we need to put in place and what, what we need to do to practice. You know, we need to do that as well and, and really reflect on, on are we doing the right thing? You know, we talk about our stakeholders, and I think today is a time, are we really doing what's best for our colleagues and our stakeholders in our office buildings? Are we doing what's best for our colleagues and our, our stakeholders, you know, throughout the company? You know, it's time to, to really take a look at this wholeheartedly and di- dissect it. Right, get deeper into what we're doing. What does our plan really mean? You know, when we talk about planning, is it just a piece of paper that we put on in a binder on a, on a behind our shelves here, right? Or is it really something that we live and use? And, and, and I think that's what we need to be at. I think it's where we need to really reflect. It needs to be something what we live and use on a daily basis to make decisions. We shouldn't be making decisions out of out of fear. We shouldn't be making decisions off of anxiety, right? We should really use the data that's out there that we can really support on why we do what we do. I think it's important to do this. So over the next few days, let's really sit back and reflect, you know, and the idea of never forget, never forget those that died, never forget those first responders that went into the fire, into the building as everybody else was streaming out and never forget the lessons that we learned. 
never forget what one man could do, like Rick Roscola, to be able to really change the culture of an organization and save, you know, around 1,200 lives that day. Anyway, everybody, I do appreciate your time with me today. Um, you know, and it's been great. Thank you for, for spending time with business on continuity today. Uh, please visit Titan HST for all your communication needs. I remember to follow us on your favorite podcast player, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, and join us next week. And until then, stay safe, stay hydrated. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. In July, the UK government promised more than £860 million for flood defence schemes over the next year. Severe flash flooding following torrential downpours. The same month, heavy rainfall resulted in numerous reports of flash flooding across the country. For the second time in less than a month, severe flash flooding has battered parts of London. It also caused devastation around other parts of Europe. Good evening from Erfstadt in western Germany. The waters have claimed more than 130 lives in this The Met Office's State of the Climate report showed that 2020 was the first year on record to rank in the top 10 for heat, rainfall and sunshine, saying that it's further evidence that climate change is already measurably impacting the UK. On this edition of the Sky News Daily podcast, we're revisiting an episode we published in February following catastrophic flooding in India. The sound of diggers at a development project is not anything unusual, but the heavy machinery you can hear was not being used to build anything. This was a search and rescue operation in northern India, helicopters scanning the area overhead. More than 200 people were left trapped when ice, rocks and debris came crashing down the Himalayan mountain on the 7th of February in the state of Uttarakhand. Two hydroelectric projects were hit, inundating the river and destroying pretty much anything in its path. It sort of glacier collapse further up the mountain caused the disaster. Some survived. But angry relatives of those missing confronted those leading the operation, unhappy with the speed of the response earlier on. Sky's Neville Lazarus reported from the site in the days that followed the tragedy. This is the moment a part of the Nanda Devi glacier broke flooding the Dhauli Ganga River. The force of the water broke two dams. Looking down at uh, the hydropower dam, one could imagine the kind of force the water and debris and mud would have come down from the Nanda Devi mountains, destroying everything in its path. It has left 
a sort of a white muddy mark along the balls of the mountain. This is quite a remote part of the Himalayan range. It has taken us almost 16-17 hours to reach the site. It is a site of devastation. As we recorded this podcast, dozens of bodies have since been retrieved. The region is prone to flash floods and landslides, but is climate change to blame and might these developments be another factor? Welcome to the Sky News Daily Podcast with me, Dermot Murnahan, as we examine the story beyond the headlines. My name's Natasha McTarsing. I'm an assistant editor in the data and forensic unit at Sky News. This team aims to dig a bit deeper into some of the detail around the stories that we're covering on Sky. Sky News has been taking a closer look at what we know about the disaster. We set out to find whether there was any satellite imagery of the region and the locations that had been affected that could help us give our listeners and viewers a better perspective on what had happened or add something to the way that we were telling the story. There are two or three sort of known sources of satellite imagery or satellite provision that take pictures of events happening all over the world. We discovered that there was a whole community of international scientists out there on social media looking at the same imagery as us and everybody was discussing what they thought might have happened. Many scientists in the region suspected that there was a glacial lake outburst flood and that's where a lake breaches or bursts its dam and causes a flood in the region. But the pictures that we found gave us another idea. So some of the pictures that we sourced um, showed us that there had actually been a crack in Nandagunti Mountain. That's in this Himalayan range where the disaster happened. And there was one particular image of this crack, which was taken on the 2nd of February, a few days before the disaster itself. And as we looked back at the same spot, we could see that that crack had been there for some time. In fact, the, the first time that that crack was shown on the mountain range was captured on the 1st of January 2020, so just over a year ago. So it's obviously a crack that had been developing over a period of time. The scientists we spoke to believe that the crack in the mountainside caused a huge block of rock and ice to fall nearly two kilometres to the floor of the valley. There were also images which can show the scar left on the mountainside of this block breaking away and that scar was around 550 metres wide so it was a huge huge piece of rock which crashed to the valley floor. We also know from other images that a previous avalanche in 2016 had left a big ice deposit on the valley floor so as this large block of rock and ice rolled down the valley, it collected some of the ice that was left in 2016, sort of increasing its mass. And as it travelled down the valley, there would have been heat generated from its movement, which melted the ice. And that meant that there was lots of water generated, making this whole mass incredibly big by the time it reached the villages further down the valley. The scientists studying this haven't formalised any of their conclusions yet, but it certainly seems like the evidence that we have and the pictures that we've all viewed show that it was indeed a large block of rock and ice breaking away from the side of the mountain, which caused this devastating landslide.
In terms of what is happening out there, I can tell you what I experienced. I mean, going up the mountains, these are remote parts of the Himalayan range, and I found there was a lot of construction happening. Neville Lazarus is Sky's India reporter. All along the route up to uh, Joshimat, which was the big town next to the dam, and after that, uh, an arse journey to where this tragedy took place and even beyond that. It just seems that there's lots and lots of big infrastructure projects happening. There's the government has pushed a sort of a 900-kilometer uh, expansion and connecting the big four Hindu religious sites uh, in terms of infrastructure and, and road constructions in these places. There are close to about 50 uh, small and medium power stations coming up in this whole Uttarakhand uh, state. This avalanche which came down, uh, the deluge which happened down the Nanda Devi mountains into the Rishi Ganga and the Dholi Ganga and then eventually to the Alaknanda River, it looks absolutely devastating because uh, you had almost uh, 40 to 50 sort of feet of a mud line, a, a mud mark along the mountain and, uh, of the river that runs below, which shows that the deluge that came down came down with these massive boulders trunks of trees, slush and earth. And Neville, just give us a sense of the geography, of the the scale of the area affected here. It's quite sparse in terms of the number of people living in these villages, but most of the villages, uh, thankfully, are much higher than the riverbed. Almost all the deaths and all the missing people have taken place in the two PAR stations. One was under construction. Uh, The bigger one, it's called the 530 megawatt Tapawan a power, hydro power project, and another one was the Rishi Ganga, which was a smaller one, where they believe about 70 people went missing. And that is closer to where the avalanche happened. So it, it came down the mountains, Himalayan range next to Nanda Devi, uh, which is the second highest peak in the country. It came down those mountains, flowed into the Rishi Ganga Valley, which is a tiny a river through these big mountains, and crashing over the small dam where people were working that day and then it flowed down that river the Rishikanga river into Dholaganga and onto this other big dam which was being constructed now people were working on Sunday because they have nothing else to do out there there were a few workers who were from the adjoining villages but they were very few but most of the workers came from other parts of the state who lived where the construction was happening. And we actually saw some big shipping containers which were living quarters. Actually, almost two-thirds of it was buried into the river. I was speaking to one of the survivors from there, and he was a project manager. His thing was that on a Sunday, whether it's a weekday or or a weekend, people living next to the the power stations because they're constructing this uh, power station, they all were present at that time. So over 200 people were missing. And tell me more, Neville, about the authorities' response. How quick was it, first of all, and uh, how extensive is it, and how effective has it been? There was quite a quick response from the the ITBP, which is the Indo-Tibetan Border Police, because there is a staging post just there. We are optimistic. We're quite close to the Chinese border, and there's been a lot of friction between the Indian and Chinese militaries across the whole Himalayan range from... Uh, Ladakh in the north of India down to Arunachal, which is on the east. So uh, over the last quite a few months, there have been a lot of friction between the Chinese and Indian military. And the Indian side have upped their personnel. And there is a sort of camp of the Indo-Tibetan police force. 
And they immediately got into action on Sunday itself. Then there was a lot of other agencies brought in. The military came in, paramilitaries and and some specialists uh, had come in. But it is quite a challenging task. The small pass station, the road had been washed away. You had to stop at one place and then move almost uh, half a a kilometre and come close to that power station. You couldn't see any of the power station because it was under almost 25, 30 feet of debris, soil and boulders. We saw one rescue uh, person who tried to step onto that, the soil, and almost immediately he went almost waist down into that, and then they hurriedly brought him back. So it is very difficult because you cannot have big machinery trying to clear that because it's not possible for big machinery, so earth movers or earth diggers to get to that place. In terms of coordination, I did feel there was very little information, sort of coordinated information coming out. 35 men were uh, believed to be trapped. They were trying to clear that tunnel out. Up till now, they've only reached 140 metres off this 1.7 kilometre or a one-mile uh, tunnel. We wanted to save as many lives as we can. There was a lot of criticism from the relatives saying it is too slow, there's inadequate machinery being used and also uh, there's no coordination happening. And tell us a bit more, Neville, about the communities in the affected region. As you said, they're remote, obviously. Life must be pretty harsh there and uh, it just got a lot harsher. Absolutely. These are remote parts of the country, much poorer part of the country. And these people in the mountains live within the environment there. They want to see more greenery. They want more trees. I met many villagers across um, our, our reporting and almost all of them had the same thing that, you know, these projects are damaging our sacred Nanda Devi. Mountain people always, you know, revere their mountains and the waters and rivers. They all were very critical of these uh, large power stations and the mountains being blasted to make way for whether it's a big infrastructure, a road coming up or these dams. And one of the person I, we spoke to was a was 74-year-old Bahadur Tapriyal, who actually witnessed it. He lives in Tapuwan. He, he saw what was happening. And he said that they are building these infrastructure and these modern things in the roots of Ananda Devi. And development is good, but it comes with destruction. And they, we have to minimize this destruction. But not at the cost, you know, these developments should not come to, at the cost of ruining our environment and see what's happened to, to us. So there is a lot of criticism of these big infrastructure projects where the government has been pushing through. There has to be a balance. All of them talked about that. And, I mean, let's add on to this. It seems, as you describe, obviously, a a man-made element involved in this, certainly part of the investigation. I mean, naturally, the region is prone, as we know, to all kinds of natural disasters, to, to flooding, to landslides, I suppose, and events like that. Absolutely. I mean, this state itself, uh, in fact, almost close to that region, a place called Kedarnath, which is a very important Hindu pilgrim site. Uh, in 2013, there were massive flash floods and landslides across uh, Kedarnath, across that region, very close to this incident. And almost 5,700 people died in that tragedy. 
It has been in the minds of people. It was taken up by the villages, communities living around these places. It, this whole infrastructure projects. There was a public litigation in the Supreme Court of India. The Supreme Court of India then set up a committee to look into all of this, but uh, nothing actually has eventually come out of it. The committee made its recommendations, but it hasn't been taken into account. So yes, there is a lot of activity in terms of the environment in that area. It is very vulnerable to change and to uh, all that is happening in terms of uh, infrastructure, also climate change. Some of the villagers told us that some of their fruits and flowers are blooming and, and fruiting much before time. So, yes, in terms of environment changing, the villages around have found definite change in their environment. It's almost the perfect storm then, Neville. So the, the difficulties, the dangers that climate change presents then compounded by this development. Absolutely. I mean, it looks that all these have coordinated and come together. You have climate change at one side and then the precipitation done by making large infrastructure projects in and around these mountains. It's also compounded the fact that now, because of the economy not doing well, the government has had a push into spending in infrastructure. Uh, that compounds the problem even more because now more roads and networks, railway networks are being given that boost. And this 900-kilometer uh, infrastructure of the road, which uh, the government is sort of constructing, will not stop. So, yes, a perfect storm. Coming up, we discuss the potential impact of climate change and human-made factors on the world's mountains and glaciers. Well, first of all, I would like to pass on really my, my condolences to those, of course, who, who lost their families and, and friends and obviously also colleagues in these really devastating events. And it's quite shocking. The investigation is ongoing. Uh, the scientists and also, of course, uh, Indian experts are looking what was the exact cause and also, let's say, like, to what extent the role of climate-related drivers and climate change is coming into play. Matthias Jurek manages projects at the UN Environment Programme and is an expert on mountain ecosystems. The exact cause still remains unclear, but it seems, and that what I've seen also from the pictures and evidence, that quite a considerable amount, um, volume of bedrock and glacier ice is known to have released at a high elevation of probably 5.6 uh, altitude meters and then really descended uh, the steep slopes. And this mass movement has really subsequently mobilized an extreme amount of water from melting avalanche, ice and snow. The result was really, as you could see from the video, a very devastating flood wave of water, of mud and debris all coming together. So currently scientists, uh, an international group of scientists, uh, for example, of the International Association of Cryospheric Scientists, but also International Permafrost Association, is now actually working and supporting Indian scientists to really look into all of kind of available sources of information, data, including satellite imagery, to assess the situation, to understand it, and also, of course, to derive potential lessons learned out of it. Tell us more broadly about the role of glaciers in, in mountainous regions, just how important glaciers are to the whole ecosystem. Well, glaciers in, in mountains are quite important because they're also kind of the water tolls of, of the wider world that provide a lot of water, of course, also to downstream uh, down regions. 
I live Vienna in Vienna, which is a big city, but also let's say like our drinking water comes from mountains. But what this event really shows us, and this was also stated by Dr. Pema Gyumjo, who is the director of ECMOD, a really big partnering organization of UNEP in the Himalayas, who is doing really fantastic work of monitoring of glaciers and, and ice and snow. He really said this, this event is also a kind of a great reminder about how share our shared mountain region is so fragile and vulnerable to a multitude of geological and natural processes. But it's also a great reminder that these kind of vulnerabilities are also exacerbated by climate change. And as we see from many parts of the world uh, and glaciers, glaciers also are come, of course, uh, under siege because they're retreating uh, massively. And just expand on that. I mean, it is happening. You're witnessing it, are we, in, in mountainous regions all around the world? Yes, that's correct. I mean, I come from Austria and we also see that glaciers are retreating. And of course, what is important, we need also to listen to what science is telling us. And the IPPC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which was set up by UNEP on the World Meteorological Organization, also released a special report on the oceans and cryosphere and changing climate. And it had quite a big chapter devoted to high mountain areas. And one of the conclusions, which for me as a mountain expert was also very worrying, is that we see a decline of glacier, snow, and permafrost. Permafrost is the kind of frozen ground in mountains, so a kind of really clue which is also holding the mountains together. And uh, those decline of glaciers and snow and permafrost has really altered the frequency, magnitude, and location of most related national hazards. But on the other side, people and also infrastructure, and this is also what we could see in India, are quite exposed to these natural hazards. And this is also likely to be increased in the future to come because of growing population, tourism and socioeconomic development. And that's why this event is quite shocking because also it reminds us again about the vulnerability and also the fragility of mountains and the glaciers which will come. Well, just be more explicit about that because um, the UN Environment Programme have said that this collapse in India is a worrying sign of what is to come. And I just want to ask you straight up, what is to come then? Actually, as, as already said, I mean, science already telling us that glaciers are changing. And just to pick up on a few facts, the tropical glaciers in the southern hemisphere will most likely disappear completely within this century. We also see that in other parts of the world, like in the Austrian Alps, where I come from, glaciers have lost 80% of the surface since the mid of the 19th century. So you see there's a lot of changes which are already being documented and the science are collecting and analyzing a lot of data. And I also want you to draw your attention to an upcoming documentary, uh, which is produced by our mountain hero, Malcolm Wood, about the last glaciers. And I really would like to invite you to really check out, watch this um, interesting documentary a bit, because it really captures very well the fragility of mountain environments. And this is really a code red wake-up call, uh, which shows us that we need to act. The glacier retreat is, is just part of, of a bigger problem. Of course, we are all quite aware that we have a global warning and we also have a climate crisis. UNEP is working quite um, on a number of fronts, and uh, you might be aware of the UNEP supported production rep gap report, which also revealed that we have to decrease fossil fuel production by around 6% per year until 2030 in order to have a chance of hitting the Paris Agreement target. But instead, we are projecting an average annual increase of 2%. So the other side also looking at emissions in particular, and UNEP has been also relaunched an updated version emission gap report end of last year, 
it also tells us that we as, as countries also failing currently to meet the pledges and the actions on the Paris Agreement. And these pledges and actions must get a lot stronger this year in the build-up for the COP26 climate change conference, which is going to be hosted in Glasgow. As we know, the vast majority of the world's population don't live in mountainous regions. They live in, they live in cities. And some people will say, well, you know, it's a terrible, terrible tragedy that happened in India. But, but thankfully, it's remote. Very few people live there. And, and the risks to the vast bulk of the world population seem very, very far away from that. Just join those dots up and tell us why it matters to everyone who inhabits planet Earth. Well, as I said, I mean, mountains really provide a multiple, what we say in, in our jargon, so the same um, ecosystem goods and services, really a lot of goods and services which are coming from mountains are benefiting um, us all. A lot of mountain countries, and in fact, they have a number of important economic activities, such as tourism, which are not, let's say, like benefiting highland areas, but also lowland areas. Uh, and also, if you see in India, there was also a hydropower dam, which was impacted. So hydropower, which is, of course, generating electricity, not only for the highland area, but also the lowland areas. So if there is also infrastructure impacted, also that electricity supply for lowland areas can be hampered by that. So speaking about mountains, I think it's quite important to really understand the so-called upstream and downstream linkages that we as mountain experts are trying, of course, to make people understand. And I think on the political level, it's also quite important to see how we are able to get mountains high in the agenda. Because at the moment, mountains are recognized. We also have the mountain partnership and a lot of governments also taking a lot of action in support of mountains. But I think it needs really further action to get, as I said, mountains really high. A part of what is going on in the climate change discussions in the run-up also to the climate change conference in Glasgow, there's a lot also we can actually do in order to support mountains. And one important thing is also looking in the accessibility of data. There's, of course, a lot of data which is available out there, uh, meteorological information, river flow data, but also seismic records which are important, but on the other side, not really it's like accessible or available. And it's, it's also this kind of data which is important to understand where do we have such potential hazards in the future. You also see that some of the infrastructure maybe not be placed idly in areas where you have such areas which are really prone to hazards. And in this, um, again, it's what we call disaster risk reduction. Hazard mapping is quite important. And then obviously you can also make sure how you can invest in proper uh, measures that people are warned if such a um, disaster is happening, so-called early warning system. So there's a lot of exciting solutions out there, which are also tested in the Himalayas by our ECMOD colleagues, friends and others, so that people who are impacted by this disaster also get a wake-up call through their mobile phones if something is happening. And of course, um, what we also work in in UNIP is promoting adaptation. And at the moment, we see that still climate financing, uh, which goes into adaptation action, still needs to be boosted up. And it's a lot about adaptation, which can also, let's say, like, mitigate the effects of such events. In mountain regions, in many mountain regions, including also in Austria, where I come from, forests have a big protection role. Because forests, on the one hand, of course, they retain the water, but they also keep the soil together. And to really prevent if there is a hazard, an event that basically soil erosion is happening and is triggering such massive. So there's a lot that we 
not as, as a community, but also individual can do, like changing also our habits because we're all a part of the problem. I'm a mountaineer myself and I like really going to the mountains, but it's also my footprint which also makes the difference in the past of course i used to also to travel to switzerland to go to the mountains now because of COVID, i'm not able to cross the border but on the other side and this is a positive side effect i've started and also learned to really get into my backyard and discover the beautiful mountains so it's also how as an individual i can change my lifestyle my behavior because i'm also part of the problem in terms of what kind of transport modality i'm taking Am I sharing the car with somebody? What's my impact, actually? So I think there's not only something that governments can do, but also we as a certain individual can do in order to contribute less to the problem. Well, that's it until next time. My thanks to Matthias Jurek, Neville Lazarus, and Natasha Mukhtasin. Do go to the Sky News mobile app and our socials for more on the glacier collapse in northern India, including Neville's reports on our YouTube channel. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Sky News Daily Podcast, hosted by me, Dermot Murnahan, and produced by Annie Joyce. Tatiana Alderson is our interviews producer. And don't forget to subscribe, and if you've enjoyed this, please leave a review. The driver told us to throw every luggage we brought with us in the sea. 21 extraordinary personal stories from some of this century's biggest news events. The Chilean mine rescue has to be one of the most amazing stories that I've ever covered. Storycast 21 from Sky News. Listen, follow, subscribe. Eyewitnesses said a wall of water appeared to simply rise out of the sea. There was no warning. Episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.